0: Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're joined by our very favorite guest of all time, Macro Alf, Alfonso. Alfonso, where can people find you? I know they can find you everywhere. You've got a huge Twitter following. I heard you recently on the uh, Hugh Hendry podcast. Great show. Where can people find you? You've got a blog. Tell everyone. It's
1: called Hi, guys. First of all, I should say hi at least. I mean, how I'm polite of me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here as always. People can find my free stuff on the Macro Compass, where you just go there, you Google it, it's a Substack newsletter, there is no charge. And you read my rambling on money, QE, markets, asset allocation, and sourdough bread from time to time as well.
0: A bunch of stuff. For those of us in the audience who maybe are not familiar with Alfonso's work, Alfonso, you have over 100,000 followers on Twitter, tens of thousands of subscribers to your newsletter. So it's not just Jeff and I who are impressed by your work. It's who, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers can't be wrong. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the macroeconomic things that you talked about on the uh, Hugh Hendry podcast, which I really enjoyed. And Jeff, what kind of uh, questions are you thinking of asking? I wanted to pursue the angle of, what does someone who works at a bank think when we're entering a economic recession or perhaps a financial crisis? Are the two different? How does a bank react? How does that propagate throughout the system? That'll be my first line of questioning. But Jeff, is there something else that you wanted to address before we go down that road?
2: I mean, I think we have to talk about it, whether or not there actually is a recession, because as you know, Emil, President Biden said not that- Recession is not inevitable. Along with many people in the main, Janet Yellen, of course, the former Federal Reserve Chairman, now the Treasury Secretary, said, "I don't see anything going wrong." Jay Powell, at his latest press conference, passed on the chance to become Paul Volcker, or at least a myth of Paul Volcker, by saying, "Yes, I'm producing a recession, damn it, because we need to get inflation." Instead, what did Jay Powell say? He said, "I, there's no nothing really bad going on here at all." So. Maybe that's a good place to start is whether or not, what are the warning signs that we're starting to see? What does the evidence tell us about prospects for recession? And then if there are legitimate prospects for it, maybe, maybe then what does it actually look like and how does it actually play out? So maybe we start there. Alfonso,
0: I'm going to give it to you right now. What does a trader, an employee at a bank that's sitting at a desk who has billions of euros of responsibility think when they hear the authorities say it's going to be okay it's going to be fine do you take their word or do you do your own investigation first
1: Uh, you guys make me so you know you ask so difficult questions i don't know how to answer to those but i'm going to give it a try so what i'm going to say is that when you run a lot of money you You try to disentangle any single speech from any policymaker, and you start to read the tea leaves as well of what they want to say to you. But more than their words, you would be looking at what their staff is doing. So central banks and other guys all have have, you know uh, economic staff running some models behind, and they are they are told to come up with something at the end of the day. Some of those models are more interesting than others in what they tell you. The New York Fed as a so-called dsge model it's a well statistical model that tries to predict real gdp growth and core inflation and they came up publicly i think a week ago with the update to their model 2022 real gdp minus 0.6 percent or something like that, minus 0. 0.5 or minus 0. 0.6 2023 same story I want to try and pass across the message. The New York Fed economic projection staff is coming up with a two-year-long recession as their base case from their model. That's the New York Fed stuff. And then I have Powell, Yellen, Biden, and a bunch of other guys telling me that there is nothing to be worried about. Okay, so I have words of policymakers or politicians, and then I have a an economic model. Then I have my models, Emil and Jeff, and then... You know, they can be right, they can be wrong, but I look at a bunch of forward-looking indicators. Let me tell you what I see, just two or three of them. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. A, a PMI, new orders to inventory ratio. So not one number, you overlay new orders against inventories. Basically hitting, you know, multi-year lows. Great, right. so there are no new orders coming in. There's a bunch of companies that have a bunch of inventories they have accumulated, and now they don't know what to do. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to try and and lower prices to start dump them on consumers who, by the way, have real wages uh, shrinking for more than a year. So not a great prospect from that perspective. Then I have a second one, which is the Philly Fed survey, where they interview, I think, 125 CEOs and they ask them, hey, guys, how do you feel about the economy over the next six to 12 months? And they have been telling you, we feel crap about the economy over the next six to 12 months. (laughs) So that indicator is at the lows over, I think, a decade or so. Lows of a decade. That's the second one. And then I have my proprietary credit impulse model, where I try to look at if money is being pumped into the system. I didn't say bank reserves, I said money. So I mean, like if our bank accounts are growing, the ones we can use to spend on stuff, not this, this laundry mat tokens something like that you call them Emil right i'm talking about the real money and and you know the real money actually uh, had increased for a while because you know, governments told us that they we had checks and they would cut taxes and they would guarantee credit losses on bank loans and so we had we, we had that rush and now that that rush of newly created potentially spendable money is not there anymore if anything the government is trying to take resources from the private sector they want, they want to slow things down, and banks, yeah, late cycle are trying to lend a bit here and there, we can talk about what kind of lending they're doing, but the credit impulse has been dropping too at a very, very fast pace. so my forward-looking indicators would rather agree with the New York Fed model than they would agree with the policymaker, which I'm not surprised because my models always disagree with policymakers, <laughs> but you know i I wouldn't agree with the Biden and Yellen and Powell telling us it's all fine, it's not. All oh, fine, guys. It's not.
2: Yeah, it's it's never really it is or it isn't. We're not we're not trying to use a crystal ball, right, Alph? It's probabilities here. We're always right. dealing with probabilities in the DSG model that the New York Fed put out. Their probability model has changed from between March and June. So what they're saying is, over the last three months, the probability distribution has skewed decidedly to the downside. Now that I guess that could mean. The United States and the rest of the world economy avoids recession, but chances are that that is you know, very slim to none at this point. And what they're saying is, if you reinterpret their models less literally in terms of probability distribution, by having the two-year midpoint be negative, so negative GDP over the next two years, what they're saying is, we don't know what the recession's going to look like. It could be, as you said, it could be a prolonged, very shallow recession Or it could be something like a very severe recession in the second half of this year that by the end of 2023, we still haven't recovered from. All we know is that over the next couple of years, even the econometric models, which are set up to not show recessions, they're made to be smooth. It's very difficult to get DESGE models to go in one direction or the other. So if the econometric models that the New York Fed runs are saying that the downside has emerged precipitously over the next couple of months? Then you have to really look at what markets are doing. You have to put all this stuff in the stuff con- uh, the everything in the context that you're doing, Alf. With I love some of your 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 uh, your interesting model. You know the the ISM new orders and inventory. That's a big one, of course. As is uh, some of the other cyclical indicators. And it's really about probability distributions and how probabilities are changing through time. And probability, in my mind, probability distributions weren't very good to begin with. Now they're becoming decidedly more skewed to the downside.
1: I agree. It's all about probabilities in the end. Now we don't know exactly what the final modal outcome is going to be. But the DSG model basically is telling us there is a 10% probability in their assessment that we're going to have a soft landing, which according to policymakers is maybe a 80% probability if you hear them talking. So you got there basically assess what your subjective probability is, look at what markets are pricing in, because they always price a probability distribution as well, rather than one model outcome, overlay them against each other and say, look, I mean, is there an opportunity here to lean longer certain asset classes against another? And that's what a portfolio manager would tend to do, always keeping an eye on, on risk management too.
2: Yeah, and you can never take them at their word, right? I mean, policymakers are going to say what they have to say. They're going to say things are fine because they have to say things are fine. And as you said before, you have to kind of look underneath at what they're actually doing or, or even what their models are telling them because, they, that, you know, central bankers in particular, they're nothing but creatures of their econometric models. So if Jay Powell says one thing in public, it doesn't matter whatsoever. It's it's what they're actually going, th- talking about in private, which unfortunately we're not privy to at least for another five years. But either way, as you said, as you point out, I mean, you can kind of figure out what they're actually saying and what they're actually doing.
0: It's a window of vulnerability, as uh Lakshman Achuthan says at Economic Psycho Research Institute. So we're entering a window of vulnerability where the recession is very likely, probable. And how severe will it be? We don't know. We don't know. Well it'll be determined by events during that window of vulnerability to be determined. So Maybe it's it's a little bit like uh, when you go water skiing off the Amalfi Coast, right? You're if you go too slow, then anything can knock you over. You might hit a wave, an octopus will come out and jump on you, sea lion or something worse. However, if you're going along very quickly, like an economy is rip roaring, you just cut right through the waves, the sharks, whatever it is. It's the window of vulnerability where we'll be going so slow, which could tip over into just merely a recession. Or maybe a crisis or something works. We'll see How do you determine how to react to that Alfonso do you step into this window of vulnerability with a different portfolio and then be on the lookout for inflections further downward upward how do you what How do you prepare your big portfolio
1: into something like this So what I would tend to do, Emil, is I would have a base case that comes from systematic macro models. So I rank a bunch of forward-looking indicators for real GDP, for inflation, and other dynamics and other metrics that might influence asset class returns, including the monetary policy stunts, against neutral, because people tend to obsess about where Fed funds rate are. Fed funds rate today are at a certain level, and that doesn't mean they're a commodity or restrictive because the neutral interest rate has changed materially between the 80s and today, or another way to say it, we don't make enough kids, and we are less productive, and our economy is completely different than the '80s, perhaps. So it's a completely different ball game. You need to put that one as well into your models, and then you'll come up with a base case, right? And there's there's going to be a base case, and there's going to be a certain probability attached to it, and a certain conviction. And within that sort of certain macro regime, then you can, with a certain likelihood, assign a higher weight to certain asset classes, right, and a lesser weight to others. But you need to be able to hedge as well for things you haven't predicted. It's a Bayesian updating exercise where every month, every day, you get a new set of information. You will never be able to have the full picture in front of you. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody has this, you know, godlike perennial sight of what's going on in global macro landscape. So you'll have to keep an open mind, update yourself with new information and be extremely nimble, which means sometimes buying hedges to your core position, even stuff you hate doing because it, it contrasts to your long-term view so for instance i i am a bond bull and i have been for whatever since i started working basically because i saw a certain probability distribution being priced in by markets which wasn't wasn't reflecting in my opinion the fixed income landscape ahead of us for the next decade that doesn't mean that throughout cycles the bond market can just rip my head off and yields can't can't rise by 200 basis points in a cycle so you need to be able to do some macro cycle risk management while your long-term thesis play out, right? And so right now, the base case is the economy has been slowing since, actually, since April 2021. My models were pointing to the economic growth impulse, so the second derivative of growth being slowing down. Now, that slowdown we have seen in several indicators, and my models are telling me that's not going to stop also, I have the monetary policy perspective. I have these guys looking at all the backward looking indicators. Powell is waiting for month on month core inflation to slow down before he's going to even think about slowing down. Month on month core inflation is probably the last thing that is going to slow down. So, I mean, the labor market maybe is going to show some cracks a bit earlier. So, maybe we get him to, to, to understand he's done enough damage. But that is also a you know, a very coincident indicator. It's it's not a forward-looking indicator. So he's going to make damage even way after, um, you know, even, even way beyond what's necessary to try and slow down the economy. So I have that. He's telling me that very openly. He's telling me that he's going to do that. All right. Then I know the economy has been slowing already on top of it. The best thing I can do right now, Emil, is to be a... A Paolo Maldini to make an Italian football analogy to be a defender, not to be an offender right now, so I need to be more conservative. So I've been very heavy in cash in bank deposits. I'm sorry, guys let, let me be precise. this is the euro dollar this is the euro dollar universe. Yes, you
2: have to be specific here I am I am sorry guys I am I've
1: been very long bank deposits. I don't have a master account at the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve. I can't do mat tokens um and uh that's basically been the most defensive thing that I can think of right now, and then I have some a more tactical approach. I can be short, I can do some other stuff but from from an investor perspective, cash is the least damaging thing you can have right now in your portfolio, but I have been looking at bonds, ladies and gentlemen for a long time, I've been away from the market, I've been playing some flatteners some more tactical trades, but now bonds are are, are screaming to me they're they're saying half. Oh, we're here, and we know we like us. Why? Why are you not <laughs> buying us yet? And so tomorrow, I'm going to release a piece. Uh, tomorrow is Thursday, 23rd of June on the Macro Compass, where I'm going to talk about why the bond market is becoming, on a risk reward perspective, again, I think, relatively attractive to start and get some some bonds on to provide you with some uh, drawdown protection from your risk assets and some potential returns ahead of us
2: it's you know it's it's been a tug of war don't you think in the bond market and you're actually right that it's been essentially the short end of the curve has been in charge mm-hmm. for the last you know 6 months or whatever it's been you know the 2 year treasury short term rates in Europe finally ticking up as well uh, we need to talk about that two differences between the US and Europe but before we get there the the tension in the yield curve has been essentially the long end as you're saying picking up recession signals, but still you have to you have to pay attention to the short end, which is Fed, 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 because if the Fed is going to raise interest rates, it's going to raise IOER, it's going to raise RRP. You don't want to own a two-year treasury that yields just 1% if you can get through 2 two or 3% in repo. So the Fed has enormous influence on the short end of the curve, not T-bills so much, but that's a different story. And so- over the last six months, you have to hold your nose, even though you want to buy bonds, I'm in the same position as you are, you know that there's value in long-term fixed income instruments, but as long as the market thinks the Fed has a clear, or the ECB has a clear shot to continue raising rates, that's, you don't want to get it, you don't want to get in front of that train. You want to, you want to avoid fixed income until the balance of risks actually tips, until the market says, The long end is picking up growth slowdown, downturn, recession risks, and those are becoming too big to ignore that those are actually going to overcome all the stuff the Fed is doing. At at some point, the Fed, no matter how much they talk, no matter how much uh, they're positioning themselves to be aggressive, eventually reality has to intrude. Reality becomes the 800-pound gorilla in the room. So the tug of war has been... Balance of power between the Fed and at the short end and these recession risks, lower growth and inflation expectations at the longer end. And I'm curious, I think I'm hearing you correctly and saying, like Emil and I are, we're beginning to believe or beginning to see how those risks are changing. So that over the last couple of months, it was Fed, 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 Fed's in charge, especially uh, since uh, what was it at, toward the end of May when. The Europeans cut off the the gas supply, cut themselves off the gas supply from Europe, which of course had an effect on oil prices, which is going to have an effect on the CPI, which meant that the Fed was going to be more aggressive. And so, for the last little while, it's been all about rate hikes. Now we're starting, I think, to see commodity prices and some other markets break down, where maybe the balance of risks are shifting more favorably to what the long end is pricing rather than Federal Reserve hawkishness. Sorry for taking so much time to to set that up. But the question is,
0: that's what you're thinking as well. Alfonso, Mr. Hugh Hendry, Scottish (laughs) early 21st century philosopher. You actually gave him (laughs) some philosophizing when you shared that your mentor told you there are three times, very existential, there are three times in the world, a time to be long, a time to be short, And then tell the audience, speaking of being off the Amalfi Coast in a boat, what the third time is and where I'm going with this is how do you know that time is over? Because it sounds like in your piece that you'll be posting at the Macro Compass, you're starting to think it's time. That time is ending this third time. What is it?
1: So there's a time to go long, a time to go short, and a time to go fishing. That's what my mentor used to say. So Jeff is, has, has summarized basically the what's going on in the bond market very well. And the front end has been in charge for the last seven to eight months. It's been all about repricing the Federal Reserve reaction function, has been basically repricing their attitude towards slowing down inflation. And as inflation had worsened, mostly because of geopolitical events and supply bottlenecks, but it had worsened, and it had worsened to a point where the comfort zone of a policymaker was not there anymore, to be honest. They had to come up with a strong message. And the bond market is so vicious, guys. It tends to force, basically, to lead the policymakers, like, ah, you're turning hawkish. Well, I'm going to see how hawkish you can turn. (laughs) And so we had this euro dollars contract tanking every time, all at the front end, all front loaded to to the point where the December 2022 euro dollar contract went to price 3.75% almost Fed funds by the end of this year, when they were still at 50 basis point or 25 basis point. So it was a huge front loaded hiking cycle. But Jeff had pointed out already as the December 2023 contract was pricing in cuts by the Federal Reserve. So the bond market was like, guys, We're going to challenge you because you're telling us you want to be aggressive. So let's show us how aggressive you can be. We're going to front load everything in here. And then we're going to tell you already that this is going to be enough to slow down the whole thing. You'll have to cut into a recession already in 2023. How do you feel about that pricing? Because then when Powell shows up to the wire, everything he says is an answer to bond markets questions. So the bond market has been in charge and has been asking questions to the Federal Reserve the whole time. And every time Powell went and said something, it was an answer to the questions asked by the bond market. And so in that period, there was the time to be short the front end of the yield curve as the bond market was trying to ask questions or alternative to be in flutter yield curve. Because, you know, if you knew the bond market was asking tough questions and the Federal Reserve had to sort of answer, yes, we're going to be very aggressive, then the back end of the curve would be like, Guys, you're going to kill the economy right here. And so we'll have to price the next 10 years of sluggish growth and sluggish inflation expectations. And the, the back end of the yield curve would actually flatten out compared to the front end. Then there was a period, Emil, when all of that was kind of priced in. So we have basically been range bound in yields right now for what, a month, month and a half. We've been around 3%-ish in 10 years between you know, 28 and 3.2%. We've been range bound right there. That has been the time to go fishing which means you just sit there and you watch new data coming in new information you wait there's no rush if there's no good risk reward you don't do anything it's very simple one of the best things as a portfolio manager you can do is do absolutely freaking nothing for a long time it's very challenging it's very very challenging but it's a great thing to do from time to time and right now while i'm assessing whether i should you know leave the fishing boat and actually go long some bonds. And why do I say that? I'll give you a preview of the article. So there, is, there are four or five indicators or four or five boxes I want to tick before buying bonds. What I want to see is the following. The momentum of growth slowing down, ticked with a big red mark, and we know why. We have talked about all the forward-looking indicators. We're actually literally seeing the evidence that the economy is slowing down already. We talked about inventory building up and all of that. So let's say, big tick, the momentum of inflation slowing down. Mm. That is a bit, you know, we don't know yet. We haven't seen the momentum of inflation slow down. We have been the momentum of core inflation not picking up anymore. So we have seen that sort of, you know, core services prices are going up, but then core goods are starting to come down. And we're having this, You know this kind of plateauing but we don't know whether it lasts what i can see on the screen though is industrial commodities cyclical commodities getting completely slaughtered over the last 10 days like just hammered bad and you know that makes me think because the supply side of these commodities hasn't gotten any better over the last 10 days or two weeks the russia ukraine war is still working um China isn't improving on their on their zero COVID policy that much. They try to loosen up, then they have to close again. And still commodities are getting hammered. So hey, maybe that momentum of inflation, the month-on-month prints that the Fed is so much looking at, maybe the distribution of probabilities is changing a bit. So not not like a, a, a sharp tick box there, but hey, I have to reassess my probabilities. Then I have another thing, which is what is the, the central bank telling me about the bond market? And so that is an interesting one because it's gonna be the demand destruction narrative that leads them basically to understand how, how harsh they can be on that hiking cycle. So they'll be, they'll be reactive, they, they won't be proactive. So that box is sort of a, of a light gray box. They'll come after, maybe I can front load them a bit, Let's see. The fourth thing is what is the market pricing in? And the market is pricing in that the Federal Reserve goes and hikes all the way to four percent and proceeds in this hiking cycle while the economy is slowing down for a prolonged period of time. We have the Euro dollar contracts pricing a four percent terminal rate by June 2023. That's a year of demand destruction, of cyclical economic growth slowing down, and I still have the bond market telling me they're gonna keep going. So do I want to lean against that probability distribution? Yes. I think right now, as time goes by, guys, that's, that's the most important thing. As time goes by and conditions remain so tight, demand destruction is going to proceed over time and it's going to accelerate. It's not a linear process. It's rather a convex process. So time plays my way here. The fifth thing is carry. So when you're long bonds, you normally, when you're long any position, you'd like to sit On something where you get rewarded for. That's, you know, you want to harvest risk premium. And because the market has gone and priced such an aggressive front loaded hiking cycle, especially if you have a view that these guys are not going to be able to deliver the late stage. So let's say the beginning 2023 part of the hiking cycle, as the economy continues to slow down, you're going to enjoy a very nice carry out of that position. So I'm like, hey, I'm ticking three boxes. I have the fourth box, which is the Federal Reserve. But yeah, they're going to be reactive anyway. Let's ignore that box for a second. And then I have the other box, which is inflation. I had to figure out that part. But three boxes ticked out of five makes me think maybe it's about time to buy some bonds here.
2: Right now, if it's three boxes that are already ticked, but the other two are kind of, you can, your, your pen is already starting down to tick them. It's not like they're. Not like they're right. completely empty or they're completely flashing red, don't do this. It's just you, you can kind of sense that it's a matter of time before you start ticking them. So it's you've already got the majority of your boxes. You already got the majority of your models. And the market is is agreeing with you that however, you know, that's the wild card. However far the Fed gets and however long they're able to stay there. And it's true of the ECB, too. The ECB is not going to get anywhere near as far as the Fed, but still. The ECB wants to act in the same way, a little more cautiously. But however far central banks get, they're not likely to stay there very long. However, there is risk to doing that. There is risk being long bonds because some geopolitical event could happen, oil spikes up again, and the market says, oh, the Fed's going to go to 5%, maybe at a height. So you do have to be careful about it. But you're right. The balance of risks are moving. You can see them moving over the last couple of months. And you can see some of the laggards start to pick up, like you know aluminum is breaking down, copper is breaking down any number of forward looking industrial indicators are telling you, as you said, the supply part of these equations are still extremely favorable, so if they're if commodity prices are breaking down as much as they are, there's got to be something going on with global demand, and it's we're not even halfway through twenty twenty two already so it's all the stuff is lining up even if it isn't isn't quite yet perfect. As you know, as a portfolio manager, if you wait for everything to line up perfectly, you've already missed the boat.
1: That is true. And I want to stress out the time component into that because you can structure trades by making sure that you know how much you're paying, how much you're losing. You know, you can either set a stop loss or you can structure with options such that you know how much you're losing, right? Right now, if you look at at time ahead of you, you have... Let's say over the next six months, there is a. It's very difficult to imagine how the second derivative of growth is going to turn up. For that to turn up, you need, you need credit being thrown at the economy now, and it's going to take a lag before it, it it kicks in. And who's going to throw credit? I mean, the government is telling you, no way. We have to slow down demand. I mean, that's the opposite of what we want. We're going to drain some resources from you guys. Look at the tax season that just went through in April. I mean, holy crap, there was some drainage of, of money from the private sector back into the government balance sheet. And the banks are like, yeah, okay, so so loan yields are higher because the base yields, so let's say the risk-free rates have gone higher, the treasury yields, credit spreads are widening pretty aggressively. So hey, if I make a loan right now, then at least I get, finally, I get rewarded for some risk I'm taking. But do I get rewarded enough? Because if I look at the credit worthiness of most of these borrowers, who's coming and asking for loans right now, is the same weak balance sheet corporates that have enjoyed borrowing on a three to four percent all-in yield between twenty sixteen and twenty twenty on average. This is high yield junk investment. Gra- sorry, junk rated corporates that their balance sheet is viable because they could borrow at three or 4% only in yields. And when they come now and they ask to borrow at eight or 10%, their business model isn't viable anymore. So yes, I can get rewarded 8% for a loan, but I won't get my money back, or the probability (laughs) that I don't get my money back has to be phased in, right? So banks are now engaging in, in that part of the lending, let's say that that tries to target still viable companies with a relatively robust balance sheet that aren't yet cutting the capex aren't yet freezing hiring aren't yet slowing down that part obviously is going to be exhausted that that demand for relatively healthy credit and a relatively good yield is gonna get exhausted relatively soon so when that happens banks maybe might be willing to lend to somebody but there is not not enough decent risk reward out there so the the credit that needs to go through the economy at a fast pace to make this secondary relative of growth turn up again, honestly, I don't see that happening. So if you see an economic growth impulse that keeps on slowing down, and then you see a central bank is very committed at making things very complicated for the private sector. We just got Powell on the wires as we speak, telling us that he wants to go tailor rule on Fed funds rate. Taylor rule means uh, whatever, anything above 5% right now on Fed funds rate. He's telling us he might consider an active mortgage-backed security sales plan. Mortgage rates are already above 6%. On top of that, he's going to do quantitative tightening. And on top of that, he'll say to banks, guys, um, we'll do quantitative tightening. So all the reserves you have, you're going to burn them. So forget about your reserves. You're going to be less. By the way, we're going to dump some mortgage-backed securities on you guys. And they're going to say, Jay Powell, but you're you're taking away these reserves. You want us to take more risk. On top of it, you're going to sell actively some mortgage-backed securities. I'm sorry, but we can't buy them unless you pay us a pretty hefty premium. That pretty hefty premium is going to be reflected in mortgage rates. They're going to be even higher than 6%, which means all the buy-to-let businesses, all the levered up, real estate market businesses sorry guys but they're not viable anymore at these levels so i see i see this convexity in demand destruction i see this acceleration as time goes by that's likely to accelerate because power isn't easing is even tightening on top of that marginally so the time component and the reaction function of the federal reserve which is so late so reactive so 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 late, basically, in the cycle, it's going to just worsen things up, which makes me want to think at that point, yeah, maybe I can look at some bonds. That's the whole thing.
2: Yeah, and it's it's funny too, Alf, right? The governments have essentially, by buying fully into the inflation idea, the inflation narrative, whatever you want to call it, they've essentially taken themselves out of the game. They've locked themselves into, or they painted themselves into a narrower and narrower and narrower corner where they almost have to do these things. That are essentially the wrong things to be doing at this particular time. You know, whereas the markets used to want to depend upon the Fed to bail them out, or at least the idea that the Fed could bail them out when the going got tough, but it's not just the Fed anymore, it's also federal governments and the European governments who are saying, we did way too much. Now we can't even do anything to help rescue an economy that's starting to go down. So when you, as you're saying, you know, you're looking around the various parts of the credit market. You've got no comfort in government because nobody there's, there's not going to be any stimulus until, until a recession actually happens. And then, you know, even then it takes some time to get things going on. And the Fed, the ECB, they're not going to restart their buying programs until who knows when. And then you have to look at the funding risks, too, because as all of these low quality crap collateral or crap credits that were used as collateral and repo markets get repriced out of repo. You've got lending risks in the collateral stream as well it's just you look around as you're doing what are the things that could possibly go right over the next you know six months the near term the list is empty it really is empty at that point i mean i suppose there are you know some the russia or ukraine re- u- conflict gets resolved and food starts flowing and, go, and and oil starts flowing but even at that point even you know it'll take a it take a while for that to work through and some of the demand destruction and economic destruction had, that has already been wrought from it, we got to get through that first too. So, the intermediate term, as you said, you know, your five boxes, I think they're 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 more they're more completely checked than maybe they seem otherwise. Because, as you said, look, we live in a dynamic world; things are changing all the time, and they don't change in linear fashion. You see, cryptocurrencies, commodities start to fall out of bed, and you have to wonder if you know the snowball is really halfway down the mountain rather
0: than just starting to roll down. Alfonso, a moment ago, Jeff said that the Fed and ECB will restart their bond purchasing programs, who knows when. But within the last two weeks, the ECB has said some interesting, strange things. Maybe the who knows when is right around the corner. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're hearing regarding the ECB's being concerned about spreads? on sovereign bond yields relative to the core, Germany and the Northern countries, and then the periphery, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece. Were you surprised by their announcement? Did you expect something like this? Are the people that you're talking to in Europe, what do they believe is going to happen next? Is it a bluff? What, 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 what is the concern?
1: So Emil, before I answer this question, You have to excuse Jeff and I, because we are, we blubber about macro and stuff. And you want to ask those smart questions and we don't allow you. So (laughs) shame on us. But finally, you got, you got time to ask this question. And, uh, you're making me blush. Oh yes. (laughs) So what I hear from the European Central Bank is the following. No, no, I should say the following. What I hear from the Germans is the following because you, what, what is the European Central Bank, guys? I mean, what the hell is that? It's a bunch of members of the governing council coming from national central banks that have at their core interest the jurisdiction they come from. That's what you should understand. And hey, the jurisdictions in Europe are vastly different from each other. So what I'm hearing from the Germans, the Dutch, the Finnish, the Austrians, all these nice friends, let's say, is the following. We have, a, we have had for a while an ECB deposit rate, which was the reflection of an aggregate deposit rate, which was designed such that the entire European economy could somehow keep rolling at an acceptable GDP growth rate, which wasn't really fascinating, but it was okay. Right now, guys, we, we, we have a problem. We have a domestic Problem because inflation is picking up in our own jurisdictions it's picking up across Europe but also in Germany the Netherlands etc and right now because the interest rate that Germany the Netherlands or Austria as an equilibrium would have is normally much higher than the one Portugal Spain or Greece would have and because they come from a background where their monetary hawkishness is generally higher than it is in the southern Europe and because they have an inflation problem they are really not going to accept that the European Central Bank doesn't try to tighten at least. So their benchmark is completely different than the one that Italian, Spanish, Greek, and Portuguese will use. So like, guys, we are really pissed. We got a hike here. We got a signal to the market. We have to tighten up. And then I don't even hear the Italians. I don't even hear the French. I don't even hear them. I see the market speaking on their behalf. And it's like, the market's like, what? You guys want to hike? Have you seen what's up in balance sheet terms in the south of Europe? Have you seen it? That's, you know, the equilibrium rate for Italy, Greece, Spain, and and, and, and so on. It's much, much lower. Now you're going to bring it higher. No, wait a second. You want to bring it even higher because the Austrians, the Germans, and the Dutch are telling us that that's what we need to do. All right, let me do something. I'm going to sell all the BTPs I have, the Italian government bonds, because that's my normal reaction. You're telling me that, I'm owning potentially unviable debt. And so they're gonna sell all the BTPs and then BTP boom spreads wide and Italian government bonds yield tend to widen and they go all the way to 4%, 4.5% at some point. We are at 250 basis point over Germany. And then the Germans go to Lagarde and to the Italian and they're like, actually, for the first time ever, we'd like to help you. So why? What's up, guys? Well, we'd really like to hike rates, but, but we don't want you to implode, or otherwise we won't be able to hike rates because there won't be any euro anymore. So what rates do we need to hike back then? It's all imploded. So we need to figure that out. How do we do that? And uh, they go with a QE, not QE announcement. This is basically the equivalent of the 2019 QE, not QE announcement by Powell or some, something very similar to that. And they say we are gonna draw a line in the sand so that everybody who's trying to sell BTPs is gonna get stopped out. Okay, so how do you do that? When you sell BTPs as a trader, you are having a so-called negative carry trade. So you're selling something that yields a lot, and generally you're buying some boons against it, some German government bonds against it, so you're you're betting on the spread to widen. But as time goes by, this trade negatively affects you. So you have to pay, basically, to be in the trade. If the European Central Bank comes and says, this is the line in the sand, so the upside in the payoff of your trade is limited, we are not going to allow you to get more than that. Obviously, the attractiveness in the trade you know, is horrible because you have to bleed, you have to pay to be in the trade, and you can't make enough money. So people who were short were like, eh, maybe I should cover it. You know, It doesn't make that much sense anymore. In the meantime, the ECB hasn't told us, where is the line in the sand? How are they going to defend the line in the sand? Nobody told us that. But the signaling effect, Jeff, you said it so clearly many times. The central bank is just it's all about signaling. It's all about posturing. That's the, the biggest weapon they have is posturing rather than doing something. Right Now they postured and they said, this is the line in the sand few days later the market goes all over again and like you guys you guys didn't tell us where it is so i'm gonna sell some btps again test you guys and lagarde to come up with something extremely interesting she said look we cannot increase our balance sheet because we're trying to hike rates we're trying to tighten conditions we're telling markets that we are serious about inflation So what we're going to do is we're going to maybe sell some German government bonds from our balance sheet, take the proceeds and buy some Italian government bonds. How do you guys feel about that? We are going to basically do the opposite trades you guys are trying to do. We're going to buy Italy. We're going to sell Germany. Wow. That is strong. That is, that is strong. And the German constitutional court guys might be sitting there and I'd be like, what did you just say? What? It's interesting because the the Germans, they want to raise interest rates. The Dutch, they want to raise interest rates. And so Lagarde is like, here you go. I'm not only going to raise the base rates, the ECB deposit rate, I'm also going to sell your domestic government bonds. So, hey, you should be happy about that, right? But again, because of the intricacies of the European structure, you've got to go and have a chat with the German constitutional court, which back in the years had quite some strong opinions about what's possible and legally allowed in Germany and what's not. So we still don't have that answer But it goes to show if the president of the European Central Bank is trying to leak the idea of outright selling bonds from one jurisdiction to buy bonds from another jurisdiction, how strong is the pressure from Germans, Dutch, Finnish, Austrians to have to find a way to backstop Italy so that they can raise rates?
0: I would think the pressure is coming from the politicians, the technocrats in those countries. But what about the voting public? I would think the voting public. And perhaps uh, nationalists or populists would say, wait a minute, the ECB is going to be funding We're well, we are going to be funding via the ECB, the profligate spending of those countries over there. Vote for me and I'll put a stop to it.
2: It's kind of a new spin on Operation Twist, right? It's the ECB trying to twist, but in a different direction. Instead of along the y-axis, it's along the z-axis. They're trying to twist between what countries they actually buy instead of spots on the yield curve. It's, it's. I mean, but I think the, the. the I think you, what you're saying, Alf, is that, it, that, you know, look, there's no way to really reconcile these big differences. If you want to do this, then you have to do something else. It's really, an if X, then something else has to happen. If you want to raise rates, then either you let the Southern bond yields explode and have their governments implode, and then you got to bail them out like you were thinking about doing A decade ago, because nothing has been fixed since Mario Draghi made his promise, that's the overriding problem here. Because nothing has been fixed, if you want this, then you've got to do something else. It's really kind of a—I think that's what Lagarde's sort of—I don't want to say evil genius—kind of a part of the plan is—is throwing this back at the Germans and northern Europeans, saying, "You want us to raise rates? Fine, but you're going to have to give us something to be able to do it." And What do you think is the least worst option here? Is it bailing out Spain and Italy and everybody else? Or is it uh, maybe play this game in the bond market? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all kind of academic anyway, because once, if Europe does go into recession like we think it will, all of this stuff just gets thrown against the wall anyway.
1: I have to add one thing here, because we otherwise pass the message that Germany, the Netherlands, and Austria are these uh, immaculate economic machines that are, you know, humming on all cylinders. If you sum private sector debt and public sector debt in Italy and you compare that to Germany and you include contingent liabilities, tricky word, it's not. Contingent liabilities are debts that are taken over by government-sponsored banks or agencies that take over this debt or lend out money on behalf of the government, but whose debt is not recognized on the government balance sheet. Hey, accounting rules in Europe, you're very strong about that. you are super, super strong, super skilled about those. In Germany, there's plenty of these. KFW, which is basically a government owned, 100% government owned development bank. They lend to German small, medium enterprises, basically. They basically take all, they create new money on behalf of the German government and they lend it to German corporates. They are big. If you sum them to the German public debt and then you look into the German private sector debt as well, so households, corporates, and all these guys, and you compare this metric with Italy, percentage of GDP, you are not far off. You are not far off. It is just a distribution of who has taken over credit to oil this economic machine and make it look like it's delivering stronger growth than in, in, you know, in reality without credit would be able to deliver from a potential growth perspective. It's not that Germany, the Netherlands or others have this immaculate track record of no credit, a lot of growth. It's just the credit is in the private sector or is in, in contingent liabilities, which are not counted in the official measures, which also means that when you raise interest rates, The corporates that are borrowing will have to refinance their liabilities at a much higher rate. Households, which have borrowed a lot, mortgages, etc., etc., they'll have to refinance or retry and access this credit at a much more expensive interest rate. They also will have troubles. It's an indirect sort of trouble. It takes maybe a little bit longer. It's less evident to the public than the Italian government debt trouble, but it is trouble. So... You know, we try to fix one thing, but in the meantime, don't forget, if you bring interest rate at 3% or 4%, the private sector in Germany, private sector in the Netherlands is not going to have a nice time either. Huh?
2: Yeah, it's like we said, you know, the, the discussion is almost moot here because once that we get into lower economic growth anyway, all this stuff goes out the window. But I like what you're saying here, Alf, which is essentially that the, the Dutch and the Germans have better accountants.
1: That's kind of what it boils
0: down to. Pretty much. (laughs) Private debt is much more combustible than sovereign debt. And going off of memory now, the BAS has several early warning indicators. And I know that Germany has tripped one or two of them. And I know the Netherlands has, and I believe that's the household debt sector. Private, all private. These are private debt concerns versus what's in the mainstream media about the public debt being too high in Italy, never, ever looking at the private debt. And speaking of contingent liabilities, depending on the health of Deutsche Bank, that's a big liability that we can add to the German balance sheet. My last question to you, Alf. Uh, Jeff mentioned it earlier. These spreads are widening. It brings back memories of 2011, 2012 when a certain man was heading up the ECB. And I think some of our listeners may have forgotten who the present prime minister is of Italy. What are you hearing regarding Mario Draghi and his relationship with the ECB? Would does, do the people of Italy? Do you think that uh, when push comes to shove, Draghi would support the supranational, will, will he support Brussels or will he support the people of Italy and go down a path that he thinks is best for Italy?
1: I think that the man behind the proposal of offloading German government debt to buy Italian government debt might actually be Draghi right here. Because <laughs> he knows how it works. No,
2: he, no, there's no way that's true.
1: <laughs> maybe he's himself. I mean, he knows which, um, which strings to pull here and there. And um, if he has to choose, then I think it's all about political incentive schemes here because there is no hero there is no partisans here there is all it's all about incentive schemes when it comes to power and and policy making right so he is going to end this term effectively in november this year well elections in italy are going to be in may 2023 but once we hand over the budget for 2023 which normally happens between october and november Basically, for the six months leading towards elections, there is no, you know, the prime minister has, has effectively almost resigned. And, and Draghi is clearly trying to eye some political position that is in Europe, that is something of a bigger scope than only Italy. So he needs to tread the needle. He needs to tread the needle right now. So he needs to make sure that Italy doesn't implode. So he has a Europe still, a European political position to take, but at the same time, he has to, be smart and make sure that he can make Brussels happy. And the proposal of offloading German government debt and buying Italian government debt actually might make quite a lot of people happy, barring the German Constitutional Court. But he has a history of making the German Constitutional Court very unhappy with his decisions over time, and he still managed. So I have to say, I'm uh, yeah, kind of happy that for, for Italy that we have somebody in charge that knows how to thread the needle between the 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 domestic political interests and the European political interests. It's not going to last long, though, and people should keep on their radar that Italy from basically the end of the year onwards will be facing elections with a very uncertain electoral law, with a very fragmented political landscape, while we talk about backstopping Italy, we talk about raising interest rates, we talk about a very likely recession. Good luck to all of us, really. (laughs)
0: Jeff, your final question for Alfonso, keeping in mind that it's approaching dinner time, supper time.
2: Yes, it's dinner time. Isn't it, uh, what is it, The uh, coffee time, tea time? They don't have tea time in Italy, right? It's, it's cappuccino time, espresso guys, time. I don't know coffee.
1: Guys, guys, I, I used to like you so much and you have made so much damage to the Italian food and drinks rules over the last minute of this show that I have to think twice <sighs> about it. You I talked know. about supper time, it's 6 p.m. in Italy. I'm we sorry, p.m. I'm sorry. Guys, guys <laughs> th- then Jeff <laughs> shows up and talks about cappuccino at 6 p.m. I mean, are, are you guys
0: serious? Are, are, you guys, are you guys playing ball? What are you doing here? I'm ashamed of myself. I apologize to you and the people of Italy. No,
2: we're not serious. We need your help. We need your help. You got to give us a lesson <laughs> in uh, food and drink etiquette
1: because we, we're, just, we're just a bunch of cretins here. You are still my favorite guys to show up on a podcast as a guest. I, I pardon you. Go ahead with your question,
0: is going to listen <clears throat> to that, Alfonso.
1: Fair point. Fair point.
2: We're facing recession, interest rates, low, low natural rates, all this. What they're all really saying is that nothing has changed. We never fixed the problems from 2008. In Europe specifically, Mario Draghi said in 2012, July of 2012, I promise to do what it takes to save the euro. What he actually meant was, I'm going to bring down a peripheral credit spreads that's going to fix the euro and that's going to fix growth. Well, peripheral credit spreads came down, didn't fix the euro, and didn't fix growth. So we're still basically debating the same stuff that we've been debating. We're still looking at the same factors that we were looking at more than a decade ago and still wondering what the hell it's where it's all going to go when we know it's not really going to go anywhere good for for quite some time, which getting back to our investment theme is why you want to be a bond ball. It's not because you love bonds or you like credit or you love low interest rates. It's because you hate everything
0: else. <laughs> I really love this. Alfonso, the other thing that one should be long of is the South Italian coastline and enjoying life. You share some of those beautiful moments with your, with your audience. Tell the, uh, tell the people where they can find you on Twitter, your newsletter, any other projects that you're working on
1: so i would say the place to go is still the macro compass it is free there is no charge you go in there you read my ramblings in a bit of a longer format still takes you like 15 20 minutes to digest whatever my italian mind is producing that week which is macro insights, some trade ideas some portfolio allocations sometimes i'm going to ramble about money I'm going to say why central banks do QE or what the heck is QT or what is a bank deposit? What is a bank reserve? You know, it's it's a bit all over the place. And uh, the other place to find me is Twitter, at Macroalf, where together with all of that, you're going to be finding some pictures of Palinuro, which is a fantastic place in Cilento, where you should go. It's in the south of Italy, close to the Amalfi Coast. And then you're going to be finding some macro snippets on 200 characters so i can't say much but i'll try to be short and sweet and some pictures of pizza and bread as well and some italian food too and apart from that guys i'm sorry then you've got to listen to the euro dollar university and to other podcasts i'm doing i have one as well it's called the macro trading floor so on sunday we call people in and we tell them let's blubber a bit about macro we we, we, we all like that And then after 25 minutes, we'll tell them, yes, but what's the trade? Can you please tell us what to be long, what to be short? And they'll tell us something. And then after that, we'll kind of discuss, is it a nice trade? What the risk reward is, the implementation, ETF, and I talk too much. That's it.
0: Tell us again the name of the podcast. Tell us again.
1: The macro trading floor every Sunday. So you're ready for, you know, for next week.
0: Outstanding. Thank you very much, Alfonso. Yes, thank you guys. Thank you as always. Take care. Pleasure to be here. Ciao.